Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. Welcome. If this is your first time listening to Spectacles, or Bird's Eye in particular, take a listen to the show trailer here in your podcast app or on our website at spectacles.news to learn more about what Spectacles is, what we believe, and what you can expect from this show and our other shows, Insight and Focus. When we first explored Manker Olson's stationary bandit theory, and then when we discussed the failures of Salazar's dictatorship in Portugal, we contrasted dictatorship and democracy, with democracy having certain key advantages over authoritarian systems. Today, however, we want to explore this key question. How does Olson's theory of how authoritarianism works apply to American democracy? In other words, in what ways does American democracy possess attributes of the stationary bandit in conflict with our democratic character? That's really the key question we want to explore today. The goal for this episode is really to bring home what we've been discussing for the past two episodes, first in theory, and then in practice in the past somewhere else. So first we talked about this theoretical model proposed by the political scientist Manker Olson, in which a so-called bandit settles down and becomes a stationary ruler over some population. He's still a bandit, and he has incentives to promote economic growth and the well-being of his subject population, basically to enrich himself because he's still a bandit, but structurally his incentives are limited by his desire to acquire wealth, or perhaps relatedly, offer kickbacks to important constituents who help keep him in power. Then last week we dove into the history of 20th century Portugal, which was ruled for 36 years by the dictator Antonio de Oliveira Salazar. Salazar helps to demonstrate the usefulness of Olson's theory, but also some shortcomings. If you haven't listened to either of those episodes, we'll link them both in the show notes, or you can just scroll back in your podcast feed. They're definitely worth listening to. Both of these episode topics, though, might feel somewhat removed from our daily existence. An abstract theoretical model or a slice of history from a country most of us never stop to think about can both be kind of hard to relate to well, what matters today. So we're going to bring it home to the United States, and we're going to use the groundwork we've laid out in the past two episodes to show that the tendencies of the stationary bandit that Olson lays out exist to some degree in the U.S. Right. So, you know, sort of the question to get us going, I would say sort of where in our current institutional setup might we find stationary bandit-like characteristics. And I want to put out a quick disclaimer, right? We're not saying that the United States is a dictatorship. We're not saying it's totalitarian, right? I mean, what's important to understand is that Olson gives us sort of an ideal theoretical model, right? And reality is more complicated and that runs a spectrum of this and that along multiple dimensions, I would say. As we pointed out in previous episodes, we're not often talking about a single monolithic stationary bandit. We're often talking about a coalition of elites constructing political institutions, 
that allow them to maintain their power and extract resources from a political community with more or less adverse effects for the general citizenry, although in particular, the least well-off in that citizenry. Because the citizenry, contrary again to Olson's model, is not going to be homogeneous, right? You're going to have different factions who have different interests. Right. Um, and in particular, it's going to be the least well-off that continue to get the most screwed, basically. Right, um, as, as we saw with in Portugal with right. Salazar. Agricultural laborers. Agricultural laborers, right. while agricultural landowners actually were a big part of the decision-making process, despite mm-hmm. the fact that nominally you have a dictatorship, his decisions are shaped by these powerful interests, which are not good for the interests of these other Portuguese Exactly, right. And so for those least well-off citizens, right, this usually means a dearth of the freedoms that we tend to enjoy, low economic well-being, and I think importantly, a general unpredictability about tomorrow. I mean, I think that's a really important aspect of political orders, right? Yeah. Being able to have a sense that you know what is going to happen tomorrow, the next day, even in the next decade, right? If you aren't certain of that, that's going to inhibit innovation because you're going to be thinking day to day, not, you know, long term, how can I work on this you know, project or whatever. And ultimately, as well, economic growth, which means that it's going to be hard to generate widespread and widely shared prosperity. Right. And Olson, of course, contrasts this, these characteristics with democracy, saying democracy has a very great certainty about tomorrow. It has good guarantees about property rights and things like this. Uh, but what we're really saying is that if democracy is, if, if a democracy is fragile or incomplete for whatever reason, Achieving the levels of freedom and well-being or sort of achieving the characteristics of democracy that Olson lays out that are conducive to freedom and well-being, that's going to be difficult. Right. And so I think in some ways, the best place to start is at the beginning, actually. Maybe go back and start with the beginning of the American Republic. We're going to be relying a little bit on some works by Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson, Why Nations Fail, which you might have heard of, and another more recent book called The Narrow Corridor, which is about the maintenance of freedom and the relationship between state and society, which you may not have heard of. And we'll put those in the show notes. But yeah, to go back to the founding, which all of our listeners are probably aware of to some extent from high school history classes, college history classes. And I want to talk a little bit about the motivation of the American founders. And it's important to start out as saying they were genuinely partisans of a revolutionary form of government and they understood themselves to be such. I think that that is important to remember. I think today that's sort of called into question, but I think if you look back at their writings, at the debates at the uh, over the Constitutional Convention, they they understood that they were doing something that was genuinely different Certainly. and it was genuinely different at the time. Yeah. Yeah. But no question. But they were also mater- human beings. Human beings. They were materially interested men who were elites in the society, materially interested exclusively white men who were interested in interested in maintaining the wealth that they had built as colonial elites into the new republic, and they set up a form right. of government that was conducive to the maintenance of that wealth. Right. They wanted to preserve their own interests as generally speaking, landed elites or mercantile elites when they established the American Republic. And importantly, those interests included the continued practice of slavery. There were disagreements among the founders over the question of slavery, for sure, but some of them were slave owners, and the ones that weren't felt that to engage in a a fierce debate over ending slavery uh, would be to sacrifice the possibility of the republic, and so they let that question lie. And we'll talk about how the consequences of that continued throughout the episode. 
Yeah, so either way, disagreements aside, the way that they built the institutions allowed for those interests in the status quo to continue. And that contributed to the federal government at the time of foundation being a little bit too weak. I mean, I think for most of American history, you can see that the federal government was very weak and most regulation was delegated to the state governments, which weren't very strong themselves either. And in a way, this relationship has helped to contribute to the perpetuation of authoritarian characteristics in American politics. Now, that sounds probably pretty counterintuitive. Normally, we think central state, too strong, that's totalitarianism, that's authoritarianism, right? A a weak central state, that's anti-authoritarian, isn't it? But I think this is really important that we pointed out in in a previous bird's eye, probably in in a couple, though I can't remember off the top of my head exactly, I know that we pointed it out in a very early one, power is going to rest somewhere in a regime. Somewhere. And if an ostensibly democratic state is too weak, well, it's going to rest with private actors. This goes back to our small government and liberal democracy episode of of Bird's Eye, which we've plugged Mm -hmm. a number of times because it's a very good episode. And if you haven't listened to it, you really should. All of our episodes are very good episodes. That's so true. (laughs) And I think an example of this you see, okay, Founders, they delegate a lot of power to the states with the belief that this will help to counter authoritarian tendencies. But in the American South, you see, essentially, for a lot of American history, because so much power was devolved to the states, that basically means now that instead of one very large central government having this power, you have so many different smaller state governments which now have a lot of very important power. Mm -hmm. And these smaller state governments, which are closer to local interests, are much more easy to manipulate by local interests. And so that's how you see, in many ways, the rise of a really, really powerful local oligarchy in a lot of southern states of landowners, i.e. slave owners, Mm -hmm. in these these states. I mean... If you look at the historical record of the South, the most important political figures in just about every Southern state prior to the Civil War, it's a list that correlates very closely with owners of the most number of human beings. Right. Right. And that's because these were the most powerful people. And when you devolve a lot of interest to these smaller groups, to these smaller political regions, they become more easily manipulable. So actually sort of contrary to what you would think, the spreading out of power to all these different state governments made it actually easier to consolidate into a number of few very well-connected, wealthy, and mm-hmm. powerful individual actors. Right, I mean, and it, and it took, and, you know, to the point about, you know, elites presiding over society and not wanting to give up their power under any circumstances, it, you know, when even initially a minor threat to their power came in the form of Abraham Lincoln, they decided to secede from the Union, and it took, you know, an incredibly bloody war to dislodge their power. And even then, you know, 
12 years after the end of the Civil War, they found ways to take it back in a lot of ways, and those lasted at least until 1965. So it's important to note, I think, that when you create, the way that institutions are created endows certain actors with power if you if you aren't you know, if you don't lay it out such that, you know, there's truly a, an equal balance between, you know, the citizen population and elites. And that's not what happened in the early republic. Right. And I think the the way of putting this that makes it very simple, I think, and digestible is if you have a fairly powerful central state, which is accountable to a democratic population, which votes, it's fairly the process for holding those political elites to account is fairly direct Mm -hmm. and fairly possible right Right. when you devolve the political elite across 52 different institutions with competing interests and powers and responsibilities Mm -hmm. with some voters be holding some of them to account and others holding others well, suddenly it got a lot more difficult for a democratic population to mm-hmm. hold political elites to account. Right. And the founders, some of them definitely pursued this method of political devolution with that in mind mm-hmm. and wanted that. Right. And some founders probably thought, actually, this is just doubling down on political decentralization and it's going to make it easier to hold political leaders to account. But in reality, it's made American politics so convoluted, complicated and unaccountable that it's helped to undermine democratic, well, democratic reliability and and, and democratic trust. Right. And we're not saying that, for example, federalism you know, having subnational governments is like an instrument of totalitarianism or authoritarianism. (laughs) But I think it is true that the way it was constructed in the United States from the outset led to the, and the rules that were built around the system have had the effect of preserving certain extractive elite influences over citizen populations, particularly those citizens who were not citizens even, right? Particularly Africans who were kidnapped and and enslaved in the United States, right? So you see that the way the institutions are constructed is going to matter, which is not to say that we can't have federalism or that we shouldn't have federalism in such a large country. It's kind of, you know, for administrative reasons, it makes sense. But maybe we need to think about better ways to accomplish it. The other example, right, is the Gilded Age, right? What we call, think of the Gilded Age from about, you know, 1880 to the early 1900s in the United States, which was, right, the period on the tail end of the Industrial Revolution. You know, you think about people living in really small tenements while you've got these, you know, huge mansions that these people, wealthy Americans, were living in. You think the Rockefellers, right, Andrew Carnegie, the people we call the robber barons, which sounds an awful lot to me, right, like stationary. Bandit. So I think it helps actually yep. kind of illustrate the point is that you had these people who were able to, and we talked about this in the episode on Salazar, right? The handing out of monopolies right. to certain important, you know, wealthy people was basically what happened, right? That sometimes they owned, you know, like 70 plus percent of the market share in a certain sector and were totally immune from competition. Legally protected from it. Which is not an efficient way of running an economy, right? No. They were getting they were getting huge, you know, they were they were they're making these huge bonuses essentially extracting rent from the population of the United States with, you know, little ability to actually sort of get in there and compete with them because they were so huge. There were massive barriers to entry in those markets. And, you know, it, it was it was obviously a situation where you do see this sort of coalition of elites bending the rules to their own advantage because 
in a lot of ways, the federal government of the United States did not assert itself in a way that it would have the power to deal with them, at least at first, right? What ultimately did curb their power was state power, right? You know, the state, the, the you know, Sherman Antitrust Act, right? Trust busting Teddy Roosevelt, right? Those were the things that started to shift the tide. I think you wanted to say a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I just think that this is something that I touched on in a focus previously about an unconventional answer to contemporary chaos, I think was the name of it. And we'll, mm-hmm. we, I'll link it in the show notes. But I think that this history points to the importance, particularly with figures like Teddy Roosevelt, who made such a personal point about the importance of trust busting and breakup of monopolies, that political leadership inspired by principles of liberal democracy mm-hmm. and political leadership, which is truly ambitious, can do a lot to combat the forces of the system. In other words, there are these sort of authoritarian pressures mm-hmm. existing within American democracy right. toward the consolidation of oligarchic wealth and unaccountable political elites and things like this. And those forces are incredibly powerful. And if you simply have political leadership, which goes in to do business as business and run the machine, as it were, well, nothing's going to change. And those forces, those pressures are going to win out. So it takes concerted, active, ambitious, and inspired political leadership to really countervail those pressures and course correct, let's say. Right. I mean, I think because if the system is just left to, to on sort of autopilot and you have average political leadership just sort of turning this dial here a little bit and this dial there a little bit, maybe a little bit more money into this bureaucracy and a little less into that one and maybe we pass this bill, that's not that's not gonna result in any fundamental changes to the to the to the status quo, let's say. Right. I actually think that's a really important point in Why Nations Fail. Asimoglu and Robinson talk about sort of critical juncture moments, right, where institutions, which can sometimes move in kind of slow ways in one direction or another, critical junctures where they come up upon these sort of important moments, including, right, the decision making of, of, of leaders, right, that, you know, there are these structural forces that move a society or an economy or a state in one direction or another. But it is also true that there are certain really, really important moments where sort of the these where individual agents and the decisions that they make can actually be quite consequential. Where it's Certainly. not necessarily an obvious choice. I mean, in I mean, hindsight, you pointed maybe, to Lincoln just a minute ago. Right. Right. I mean, in, in hindsight, something may look like an obvious like, may look like an obvious choice. But at the time, perhaps it was like you could do this or you could do that, right? You can cave to these pressures or you can push back against them. And it is the choice to push back against them that can actually be incredibly consequential for how a democracy ends up functioning or how, you know, how much prosperity can be achieved and how widely it can be shared that, you know, leadership matters in those moments a lot. Certainly. And if it were really obvious and easy, then it would happen without political leadership, but it doesn't. Right. 
Right. Right. And it's also important to hit on, I think, that it's not just sort of the absence of regulation that caused these really powerful structural factors, but also how political institutions function. Right. And the Senate, for example, right, was not directly elected until the passage of the 17th Amendment in 1913. And obviously, the American populace was not fully enfranchised until 1965, right, when the Voting Rights Act gave black Americans truly the actual right to vote, right, the de facto right to vote, not just the de jure right to vote. And so I think it's actually important to think about this, not just as like, oh, the institutions of government are being too lax, but think about it as there are elites in government, there are elites in the economic world who have shared interests in maintaining their own power, their political power, their economic power, and they actually kind of rely on each other, right? The politicians will distribute monopolies, the monopolists will make sure that the politicians become elected to office or get elected to office again. So it's important to think of this as sort of functioning in in, in two ways in terms of at the political level, but also I think as well at the economic level, and those things can be mutually reinforcing. And today, I think we really see the legacy of those problems. You know, this sort of two-pronged political and economic approach that has allowed certain factions within society to maintain their power. For one example, I think you can see, and this goes back to, to federalism really clearly, the administration of social programs in America is fragmented across state and local governments inconsistently, almost randomly and sporadically mm-hmm. uh, because the federal government's authority has always been incomplete. And, well, it turns out state and local governments back to the whole, they're more easily manipulable by local interests or powerful local interests. It's really hard to adequately disperse social benefits and social programs at the state or local level well, and also because those, those their state bureaucracies have been underfunded by also design, that, right? Yeah. By political elites that don't necessarily want to see any kind of a growth in state power that would make you know competition more p- possible or um, people to have more of like a economic floor for themselves. And another example, I think, of this, you say, Harry, this two pronged political and economic approach. I think a great example is since the eighties, really the the american government's tendency to sort of delegate a lot of decisions and programs to the market or to private companies basically suggesting that there are certain things that are political and there are certain things that are economic that should be abdicated by the government and in many ways the rhetoric around that has been and was and is that this sort of decentralization would lead to greater freedom and greater empowerment of the people. But in reality, it's it's allowed an unaccountable, in many ways, oligarchic class of individuals in America to consolidate wealth and influence and power. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important point because and without getting too off track here, I just wanted to, it just came to my mind was you know, that we think of, right, a lot of times markets as being sort of like these independently formed or independently born, you know, phenomena. Whereas I think the truth is, and I think what sort of is coming out of what we're discussing right now is that political institutions structure markets. 
you can have what we think of as a free market with competition and exchange, but that only exists because certain rules underlie it. And if you right. and if those rules are, or if certain policies are implemented, which do undermine that, which I think has arguably been the case actually since the '80s, the market is less competitive now. Is because is because that's how people wanted the institutions to be structured. If you don't have trust busting or monopoly busting from the government, well, you get monopolies right <laughs> right and there's all and in some ways it actually goes to what olson points out right? you know sort of we've seen economic inequality grow significantly social mobility has gone down in 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 the past four or so decades and i think that yeah. part of what you can point to there is if you have seen sort of the, the deterioration of our welfare system people will have less incentive to innovate and to invest in their own futures if they're working, you know, two jobs that are not right, that don't pay super well, and they're, you know, living pay paycheck to paycheck. If their health insurance is tied to, you know, their employer, for example, right, then they don't, right, there's no, there's no incentive to go out and take risks in the economy. There's no incentive to go out and innovate. And the United States has actually been declining, right, in terms of me me innovation metrics. In well, and especially years. if you know, there's no way you'll be able to afford any health care if you strike out on your own. Right, exactly. For, and that's, for another great example, yeah. like if, if I'm someone who, even if I have some amount of savings from a decent job, mm -hmm in the US that I could keep running off of at a lower standard of living for maybe a, a, a couple of years. I could, I could sort of weather that storm because right, right. I've saved very responsibly and I've got a decent job. Well, it's, you're still not going to do it because if anything comes at you in the form of a medical emergency or anything unpredictable, yeah. there is zero safety net to help you. You'll get slapped with you a $13,000 emergency room fee. You will like get that destroyed. Breaking your leg or something. So right. good luck Good luck starting right. your own business, right. doing something innovative, pursuing an idea that you think has legs, right? And if you're an established company, people talk about, oh, the big companies will do the innovation. Well, if you're an established company and you're making money hand over bloody fist every goddamn day right. doing the exact same thing at an at a global mechanized automated level that basically requires zero upkeep or oversight. And all you have to do is keep churning out the same stuff. Looking at Apple. Uh, sorry, but no, you're not going to innovate. That is not an incentive that a private business has. Right. I mean, because I they will just, well, why would you even care? Right. I mean, that goes to a crucial point that Olson makes, right, is that under the stationary bandit, you will see less investment, you will see less innovation because people don't have that certainty about tomorrow, right? And so if you, you know, if you're seeking certainty about tomorrow, you're more likely to put yourself in a situation where you're not going to be innovating or changing, you know, shaking up the game economically or anything like that, right? So under our current circumstances, that doesn't work. I have one more interesting example that I think is, is worth pointing out that it kind of does get at this really, you know, closer to this idea of totalitarianism is that the the realm of national security in the United States, right? That because yes. the government yes. has, has this vulnerability to a certain sector of elites, we get what we call the military industrial complex where you have defense contractors that Ooh. want to, you know, use their products, <laughs> want the government to buy their products. The government is basically their only, their only buyer. You've developed this, or we have over time developed this massive national security apparatus that is largely removed from democratic oversight. And in large part, that's led to massive surveillance right over the american people and you've created this surveillance state and you've also seen technology right go from you know 
the the military right to police stations right you see these like crazy things where you know police are driving around with these insane vehicles for fighting riots or whatever and the heck like it is military grenade launchers with tear gas canisters right exactly like a, like a 12 round drum of tear gas grenades exactly exactly right and so you see that that what does the- actually transfer into a kind of totalitarianism at home, which I think is is, is disturbing and, and dangerous. And also the entrance into completely f- fake wars. Well, not to. <laughs> well, the wars the wars are very much real, but the the motivations completely falsified. Right. 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 Because well, there are very powerful interests who would like to profiteer off such an endeavor. Indeed, they would. Right. And so I, I guess. I would say decentralized power is, I think, incredibly important to the maintenance of, of freedom and democracy. Right? Absolute utmost importance. Right. And we want that, right? And that includes like a robust market economy where people innovate and compete and good solutions come out of it. But at the same time, you also, power does need to have a sort of central node, I think, right? And it, within that node needs to be checked against itself and democratically controlled. That's the only way you get to that, where the state can provide public goods that encourage economic growth and encourage the well-being of citizens and also have these internal checks. And the United States was one of the greatest innovators in its in the founding of checks and balances i mean you know you talk about right i mean we're set the set the model for the democracies that followed and so i don't want to i don't want to begrudge that but it is true that i think we have not we as much as we you know figured out ways of checks and balances and all that sort of power against power stuff, which was important. There have been shortcomings to the model, which have sort of allowed for the emergence of, you know, aspects of private and public stationary bandits, which I think have been utterly corrosive to the health of democracy. I think going all the way back to the beginning and talking about this devolution of power to state levels and this sort of making government power more susceptible to moneyed interests, which states are one example of. Of course, I would say that today, one of our great problems, perhaps because the federal government has become more important in the in the you know recent decades of American history compared mm-hmm. to local government, we have seen moneyed interests take over campaign finance in a way that has made our government so thoroughly disinterested in accountability to the electorate that it is legitimately horrifying. Yeah. But going all the way back to this question about the, the, both the state level and now I would say campaign finance is another great example. You can see that decentralization, you can say that decentralization of power is very important. And here I want to turn maybe a fairly common conservative talking point on its head a little bit, is that decentralization of power is critical to the maintenance of freedom. And the point of democracy, liberal democracy with a free market and an accountable democratic government is to rest a lot of power in the individual Mm -hmm. to hold the government accountable. Right. And in that case, then we really ought to be interested in empowering American individuals. Right. And that means a fairly robust welfare state right. and things that actually give power to the American individual and the American citizen. Right. Right. Allows them to have the liberty to, and, and also organizing and things like unions, right. things that can hold not just the government, but also other powerful actors in our society accountable, right? So I think that that is 
that's something that's really important to to point out. And I think we're sort of nearing the end of the rope here for this discussion. But the note I want to close on is to point out that America today is suffering from a detrimental path dependency. We've talked about path dependency a couple of times, but it's exactly how it sounds. We are, whether we like it or not, moored to the mistakes of the past, much as we would like to believe that the march toward a brighter future is steady and unyielding. What happened in the past, what we did in the past, shaped our trajectory to today, and it also constrains our options for the future. Mm -hmm. What is clear, however, is that breaking those old chains is going to take political leadership which is willing to grapple with the severity of our situation and to act bravely to realize the possibilities of liberal democracy. Right. In our coverage of Salazar, though, we made it clear, right, that, you know, dictatorship or extraordinary virtuous individual political leadership is not the sole path to a better future. In fact, on its own, it's not even sufficient. But if we want to get the kind of quality leadership, the kind of quality democratic leadership that can be a countervailing force against these, you know, path-dependent pressures um, and institutional structural pressures, the American people are also going to need to take this situation seriously and consider the importance of the right kind of leadership when they vote. So it's important that they consider that our status quo, if maintained, what we've got right now is going to continue to erode democracy and empower those authoritarian tendencies latent in our system. Normalcy, we need to realize, simply is not going to do enough to maintain democracy. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and share this episode with your friends or on social media. If you'd like to listen to each new article of Focus and Insight read aloud, follow the link in the notes for Spectacles Out Loud. If you'd like to make a comment on the episode that you just heard, there's a link to our website, also in the notes, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter if you haven't already, to receive a new way of seeing politics in your inbox five days a week. And find us on Twitter, at Spectacles Media. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks. Thanks.